1: And welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof. As mentioned previously, the fall episodes of the Puberty Prof Podcast are focusing on the mental, emotional, and social aspects that many preteens and teens experience. To help us out, I asked Dr. Megan Sweet to talk to us about mindfulness in which we'll define what that is and also explain how mindfulness can actually be a really healthy coping skill during any time of our lives. Megan Sweet is the former Senior Director of Program and Impact at Mindful Schools. And instead of me going on about all the fabulous stuff that she has and is doing, I'm going to ask her to say hi and introduce more about who she is. So thank you for being here. Dr. Sweet, would you want to say hi to us and tell us more about who you are?
2: Yeah. Hi, everyone, and thank you for the introduction. And Megan is fine. People call me Dr. Sweet. I usually feel like they probably want something from me. So I usually just go with Megan. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a career educator, so I was a teacher for 10 years, middle school teacher, and then um, went on to being a an administrator at, a, at an elementary school and then in the central office and and have done consulting at the county and the state level as well here in California. So um, that's my my education side, and I've also been a lifetime mindfulness practitioner. So I actually started practicing mindfulness as a kid in school. And have been practicing it throughout my entire life and worked for a couple of years at mindful schools to help bring mindfulness to schools across the world.
1: That's so great because I believe it's so great to teach younger people as well as anybody of any age about these mindfulness techniques. And before we continue, do you mind defining or describing what mindfulness is?
2: Yeah, that's great. Mindfulness is really just present moment awareness. So often our, our minds and our bodies are actually not in the same place. Our minds are traveling all over the place to the present and the past often. And so we're not actually in our here and now. So when you're practicing mindfulness, you're just practicing having your mind and your body in the same spot and you're present. That's really that's as simple as it can be.
1: <laughs> and how have you implemented mindfulness in schools with children?
2: Well, at Mindful Schools, the approach, and I would say it's my approach as well, is actually we start with the adults first. So the adults are the most important intervention in any school. Um, we know this already. So our relationships with teachers have one of the greatest impacts on student success in school. And mindfulness is actually the same. So uh, when we practice mindfulness as adults, we are able to have a calmer and more grounded nervous system. And our nervous system then becomes the intervention for Supporting our students so when when adults are grounded and I can get more of the science of that my quick answer is when adults are grounded and feeling good. Um, kids actually can entrain to that and they feel more grounded as well, so I always start there the adults practicing it's also great for adults just period because we we all need mindfulness and educators are under a lot of stress and overwhelm so having that for themselves is a good thing and it helps their kids. And then we bring it to students. We bring it to students after the adults have had a practice themselves so they can successfully lead that with their own students and know what that feels like. And then it really can be as simple as five minutes a day or less that, you know, you can do some breathing practices with students. When I was a kid and it's still something that we do today, we just did it like at a transition period. So when we came in from lunch after school, I mean, after lunch, um, that's when we would do it. It really can be any time during the day.
1: And would you mind explaining some of the physiology behind mindfulness? I mean, to me, it does impact our bodies when we practice it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah So you know, I mean, I think we can start with what's happening in our our minds, and maybe that's a helpful place to begin. Our minds are really busy, and a lot of our thoughts are are sending us towards things that are generally negative. That tends to be how our minds are our focused. We think on things that are think about things that are difficult or painful or we worry about things that are going to come. Sometimes we think about positive things, but we tend to focus on the things that are more challenging. And what happens when we're doing that is that our amygdala, which is in our brain, um, which is kind of our stress area, starts to fire. And we have the fight, flight, freeze response, which is a fairly typical one that we have all the time. And what it does is it readies our bodies for attack. So the fight, flight, freeze response was great. When we were early humans living out in the wild, so while we were picking berries or preparing, you know, trying to hunt for animals or whatever it was, a part of our brain was scanning for things that could be a threat to our our, our livelihood. So, you know, it could be, you know, I don't know. I, I like to think of saber-toothed tigers, even though we're not. I don't think we were actually lived at the same time as saber-toothed tigers, but that's where my mind goes. But anyway, you can imagine a tiger or a bear any animal that would be treating us as prey, part of our brains were scanning for that. And when that, you know, when that threat was detected, our amygdala would send a response toward the rest of our brain, flood us with all sorts of hormones and other things that would ready us for that fight, flight, freeze response. It was great when we were early humans, it would allow us to kind of move quickly and get out of the way, even before our conscious brains caught up to what was happening. So by the time we knew, like, intellectually that we're threatened, our bodies were already readied and moving towards whatever the safety protection was. Nowadays, we have that response to things like a negative email, or someone didn't, you know, like our new outfit, or maybe your favorite restaurant changed their menu. So we have that same response to that change. And we experience as a threat to things that aren't necessarily a threat, you know, like an actual physical threat, but the same thing happens to our bodies physiologically. Our prefrontal cortex shuts down. So our thinking brain shuts down and our pupils dilate and all these things happen in our body that ready ourselves for physical survival. When that happens, we can't think as clearly. Um, we're not able to respond as intentionally to our emotions. All kinds of things happen. So that's what happens when we're when we're in a stress response. Generally, if we're not aware of what's happening in our bodies and our, and our what our emotions, we're responding from that place as well. So there's this fight, flight, freeze response. But then there's also just our general going throughout our day response. And when we're not connected with our emotions and we're not aware of what's happening to us or what those thoughts are that are running in our minds, then and we're kind of unconscious, then those things come out as well. So. When we're not manning the store, so to speak, and paying attention to what our thoughts and our emotions are, then we are responding to habitual patterns that we got from a kid. So that's when things like implicit bias comes out, because we in the United States in particular have been raised in a culture that has a lot of racism and bias, and we didn't necessarily intentionally pick it up. But that programming is there and we're not paying attention. It starts to influence our experience. And we're also influenced by our family of origin, our experiences that we've had in our lives and it shapes how we experience things. So when we practice mindfulness, we just gain awareness of all those things and can reset more quickly. So the response is going to happen. But when you're mindful, you're aware it's happening and you can make a different choice. You can make an informed decision to be different. There's a famous... I think he's a psychiatrist or philosopher named Viktor Frankl. He's been paraphrased a lot. <laughs> Basically, he says that, you know, there's this moment that happens between stimulus and response and how we choose to respond to that stimulus is, is all about our free will. So the stimulus is whatever it is that sets us off and either into our fight, flight, freeze response or our habitual pattern that we've gained from our childhood. That's the stimulus. That's us going through our days. The response is how we choose to address, address it. When we practice mindfulness, it's um, time doesn't shift, but it almost feels as if time shifts and we have more time in there to make a, a more informed choice rather than just kind of a knee-jerk response. We actually can respond intentionally. So it might be more information
1: than you needed, but essentially mindfulness helps us to get get a hold of some of those things. And it does positively impact our bodies.
2: Absolutely. You know, actually our bodies know a lot of what's going on and are actually, and there's a lot of research on this too, but our bodies are actually our our best early warning system for a lot of things. And so when we're able to, our minds and our bodies are connected, we're able to attend to our bodies as well, but we're also able to regulate them. So when we're starting to pay, you know, we're not noticing that our chest is clenched all day because we're stressed out. We're having a response there, but if we can notice it, then we can actually apply intentional energy towards calming that down and soothing that. So our bodies absolutely benefit from that. Our heart rates can slow down, blood pressure, all that kind of stuff also slows down when our heads and our bodies are connected together.
1: Thank you for explaining that to us. I appreciate that very much, Megan. Sure. Yeah, no problem. Now I've heard some schools getting pushback for doing mindfulness due to possible religious beliefs or, something about we're trying to control children. What do you recommend for people to say regarding that that's not what this is about? Yeah. Well,
2: I think sometimes people use mindfulness unintentionally. So I just want to acknowledge that that can happen and that's why you need to be really well informed. So I'll, I'll take the easy one first, which is Mindfulness should never be used as a punishment or something that's forced on children, but so it should always be used as something that is a choice because we want mindfulness to be something that kids see, something that's positive and affirming for them and something that they can use as a tool to support them. It's also why I don't, you know, I always cringe when people make kids write lines if they're in trouble in school because suddenly they start to develop a negative association with writing um, and we don't want that. We want the people to have like a positive association. So. Um, Lots of schools do try to use mindfulness as an intervention in that way. And I would just say that shouldn't happen because it it undermines the work um, and, and really kids want to be in choice. So that's the first thing. The second is that mindfulness does have roots in a lot of Eastern philosophies and religions. But other religious philosophies also have things that are very similar to mindfulness. Christian faith also do as well. And just like we wouldn't use Christian language or Doctrine in a classroom, you have to be really mindful about that, mindful about that, uh, intentional about that as well when you're bringing mindfulness practices forward. So, you need to make sure that you're being um, completely secular, which means that you're not using words or phrases that would be closely associated with any religious background or belief. You're not using things like a singing bowl. I use a vibratone, and and that's what we actually recommend a lot in mindful schools. So, there's ways where you can bring forward the practices of mindfulness, which is essentially just breathing, being aware of what's happening in your body. These are all things that aren't religious at all. But I think sometimes people unintentionally use language or phrasing that is that can be attributed to religion. So you just have to be really careful about
1: that. Thank you for explaining how people can show what mindfulness really is. So thank you. How can families have a mindful household?
2: Yeah. Well, I would say again, it starts with parents first. Um, We're the best models. I try to have a mindful household, which basically means that I practice myself and I try and be really aware of what's going on for me when I'm interacting with my kid, especially when things are stressful. Our kids are great mirrors for ourselves and our great things as well as the things that we're not so proud of. And what I noticed for myself just in raising my own child is that you know, the times when he was the most triggering for me, was really the, were really the times when he was reflecting back me to myself. So those parts of myself that I'm not so proud of, and I'm not so happy about, he, he doesn't even drive yet. And he's already like the worst, most aggressive driver ever. Cause that's me, for example. So like I was dropping him off today somewhere and he's like, well, that driver was stupid. And I'm like, in my mind, my like heart broke. And I was like, Oh shoot, that's been me modeling. Being an aggressive driver for too many years. And he's picked up on it. So, you know, I have to work with that. But instead of me correcting him or being really aggressive, I have to to actually attend to myself first. So I think and I have to like attach into my own heart in response to, oh shoot, I've created this norm for my son that he's he's kind of an aggressive, he's gonna be an aggressive driver and I feel bad about that, but I need to just acknowledge that and give myself some compassion. It could be for other things, but that's just an example. So when we're more intentional and more aware, that's helpful. When my son is stressed out, he's, he, it annoys him, I know, because he tells me, but you know, I breathe. So I often, when he's in that place, I just use those mindfulness practices to help me restabilize, remembering that I'm the greatest intervention in that home for keeping it safe. So I use those practices and model them. And then I bring them to him, and again, it's choice. So for a while, I tried to make him practice and breathe when he was in a bad mood, it didn't work. So it just made him He'd like breathe in a way that was like not helpful for him. So I give him those practices when he is feeling good and have them always available for him. And, and he uses them now spontaneously when it's by choice. So I would say that's the way you begin is
1: just practicing yourself. Thank you for the honesty there. <laughs> I appreciate that. And you reminded me that the Mindfulness Magazine over the summer has the cover that reads self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And it's right there next to my bed for me to read. So you just reminded me of that. Since you have a child, you might be able to give a a different perspective on how mindfulness helps a young person going through puberty. But for anybody out there, how do you think the practice helps a preteen going through those physiological changes?
2: That's funny. So I have a kid in puberty right now. So I'm your perfect candidate. We're right there going (laughs) through it. Um, You know, the great thing about mindfulness is it helps kids to connect in with their feelings and self compassion is actually a really great part of that and a really great thing to introduce to kids at this moment in time, actually, and when they're going through puberty because it's such an awkward, difficult time and, you know, your bodies are doing all kinds of things you can't necessarily control and doing, you know, it's in your emotions can be really wild. So I think giving kids that opportunity can be helpful to practice mindfulness and the self-compassion parts are really big part of that. You know, I watched my son do it the other day. He had some friends over and he was practicing, he was leading them in a game and you know, the, you know, it's hard leading at your friends through anything and they were being kind of wild. And he was really trying to like, get them to play this game with him. And I heard him do something that I thought was so great, which he, he just said, Oh, I'm having a really hard time right now. And I'm feeling really overwhelmed and trying to lead this with you guys. Maybe I, I need to stop. And he wasn't mad. He didn't yell at them. He just said what his experience was. And what that allowed his friends to do was to key in on what was going on for him and to encourage him and to and to help them as a t- together make a choice, but also to hold his needs um, at the center, which I just thought was such a great way to respond. So I think when when you're practicing mindfulness you're in, and you have a safe space to kind of share what's going on for you, then you also can share what you need and um, and just vocalizing it. Even if you don't get the help, vocalizing it can help a lot. So I think it helps you connect in, helps you to know how you're feeling. And again, if you have a safe space for it, then you can also vocalize it to others,
1: which is also great. This fits in with health education so well because we have a standard nationally and a lot of states also support it. It's called self-management. And part of that self-management is doing healthy practices like mindfulness, yet also having healthy communication, which is another standard and using those I statements, like I feel overwhelmed, and I need or want this. That's wonderful. Thank you for supporting (laughs) health education, but also for everything that you're doing. Do you have any advice for helping educators for teaching that self work and self compassion for young people or to young people?
2: You know, again, I, I think it's it's the modeling is really important. So uh, we have to practice what we preach. So the first thing I'd say to any educator is develop a self-care practice for yourself. Uh, I talk a lot about it in, in the book I wrote, which might be what you're referencing. I call it self-work, which is basically like making a commitment to working with yourself, not with judgment or with criticism, but with curiosity and openness to whatever is there and meeting yourself with that self-compassion, meeting yourself with care. So if you're doing that and you're modeling that in front of others, the kids are gonna pick up on that. So that's, I really do think that's one of the most important primary things we can do is, you know, we're in front of kids, we have a hundred different opportunities a day, probably more to show what that self-care and that self-awareness looks like and to model the kinds of behaviors we want the kids to do. So I'd say I'd start there. I think mindfulness is a really great practice to also introduce. You can do it as little as five minutes a day with your students, it could be at a transition time, so when kids are coming in during the day, or after lunch, or perhaps in between, you know, classes, Uh, if you're an an upper grade student, it could be just as they're transitioning into your class, just two or three minutes of sitting and just reconnecting before starting class. I call that a moment to arrive. So literally just sitting together. I do it in meetings myself and, and and hosted in meetings, which is literally taking three breaths together, just connecting back into this moment, transitioning and letting go of whatever happened in the hallway or anything else. So it doesn't have to be a long drawn out thing. Little kids, two or three minutes is gonna probably be about as much as you can manage anyway, cause they get wiggly quicker, but two or three minutes will do a lot for them as well. Um, and really simply just practicing breathing can do it. And it's a great, I think mindfulness is a great, thing to apply to schools where they're also doing other SEL social emotional learning practices or things like positive behavior intervention supports or restorative justice because mindfulness just helps you to be ready to access those other things more deeply because mindfulness just means that you're aware you're present and you're aware of your thoughts and your feelings and emotions and you need that awareness to be able to get the best out of an SEL program or PBIS or RJ so they you know just
1: helping kids practice a few minutes is really helpful. You referred to your book. Would you tell us what that book is, the title of it? Because I know it's for educators.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's called an educators guide for using your three eyes. So I have educators right in the title there. Um, the three eyes are are my kind of way of thinking about a lot of what we've been talking about, which is the eyes stand for intellect, insight, and intuition. I do a play on words. The eyes in the book, the title is EYES, because it, it literally, to me, is how we see ourselves, and it and, and changes our perspective on things. So, it's a little like does that prefrontal cortex thinking that we all use, and is really helpful. But as we've even talked about today, can make some mistakes, um, and so it's 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 limiting. So the second eye is insight, and insight is perspective taking. It's knowing ourselves. It's having that emotional intelligence, being aware of our thoughts and our feelings and our experiences especially how our childhoods or our culture of origin or culture with like wherever we're living in whatever country we're in, how that influences our outlook. And the third eye is intuition, which is a lot about mindfulness. It's learning just to quiet and slow down and access that information that's available to us. That's not coming from our our thinking brain, but actually coming from our more deeper knowing. So when you use all three together, I like to say it's kind of like putting on a pair of three-dimensional glasses when you use any one lens alone, any one of those eyes, is a, eyes alone, it's kind of like, like looking at a 3D picture. And you can kind of tell what's there, but it's a little bit flat, it's a little bit fuzzy and a little bit unclear. But when you use all three eyes together, it's kind of like putting on those 3D glasses and everything kind of gets a new depth and perception. And the same thing is true when we use those eyes for our lives or in our education settings. We can start to see our own stuff a little bit better and work with it more through the self-work. And in our schools and in our classrooms, we can see the, the needs of our students and, and the changes we might need to make in our environments, um, which is what I say we do through what I call schoolwork, which is basically it's classroom teaching and school reform.
1: Thank you. I look forward to reading your book. I truly do. And recommending my future health and physical educators about how this practice is so helpful, how they can implement it in any setting, even if they coach.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: So if you were to summarize mindfulness by noting two ways that it's helped you, what would be those two ways?
2: That's a great question. You know, I think mindfulness, especially combined with that self-compassion, has allowed me to really become my own best friend and my own ally. And um, the more I practice it, the more I know myself, but also the more I meet myself with, with care. So I used to be a pretty anxious person. And actually, even as a kid, I would have these terrible stomach aches just induced by anxiety. And now I, because I've practiced a lot and I've met myself a lot of compassion, I'm able to let things go a lot more. I still get caught up, but I'm able to let it go a lot more. And it's helped me to be much more grounded. I'd say as a parent, it's definitely made me a better parent. So I would say that's the way that mindfulness has really supported me because I'm able to catch myself and when I get in my stuff, and I'm also just able to regulate when he's not. Um, so having the gift of being able to breathe and know even when I need to step away, because like even the breathing's not helping, has helped me to be a much more grounded and aware parent. And I think it's, it's helped my son to be more grounded and aware as well.
1: It seems like a lot of us, including younger people, I don't know if it was how we were raised, but a lot of us had this perfectionism quality that if you make a mistake, and I will admit to this myself, like oh, I I could do better, I shouldn't have done that. In which this practice it makes sense. You can be more compassionate to yourself because mistakes happen, and you're not supposed to be this perfect being.
2: Nope. Yeah, you really aren't. And when we when we hold ourselves to that standard really painful and also just not realistic. And so if we can learn to meet ourselves with that care and compassion, you know, A, whatever whatever has happened has happened. So worrying about it, beating ourselves up actually doesn't help. And there's a lot of research around self-compassion and Dr. Kristen Neff is a great resource for it that shows that actually when we beat ourselves up, it actually gets in our way of improving. So we think that like the being the harsh critic helps us to not do it again. But if that was true, then we'd all be perfect human beings. And that's not, that doesn't happen that way. But when we meet ourselves with self-compassion, we're actually able to improve in those areas we want to improve quicker um, and easier in a more lasting way. So not only does it feel better, it actually helps us to do the improvement that we're seeking to do anyway, usually when we're doing that mean self-talk. So
1: so knock it off if you can. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you have any other thoughts or recommendations for our listeners? You know, I I always recommend that folks just commit to self-care
2: and especially to seeking joy during the day. So it doesn't have to be a a big, giant thing. It doesn't have to be something that that radically transforms your life, but choosing to savor moments that are great. You know, I go on walks all the time and I've inserted stopping and literally smelling the roses during the walks. I'm walking anyway, but if I come by roses, I smell them. And it's a great way to stop and be in the present moment. I like roses, so that makes me happy finding even just five minutes a day to do something that brings you joy will have a huge difference. And it also just shows that you're making a choice to commit to yourself. So I would say do that. And that's a great Seeking joy is a great mindfulness practice in my, in my book. So I'd say do that.
1: Thank you. You just reminded me even today, where is the joy? Because we're here on this planet for a reason. And as whatever the reason is, it's also to be coming from a place of joy. I think so. Experiencing joy. How can people find out more about mindfulness as well as yourself? Like where can they go?
2: Yeah. So for mindfulness, there are some really great apps that you can get um, for free. And actually lots of them have discounts for educators if you want the membership version. So two of the popular ones are Headspace and Insight Timer. Both of those are on your phone. You can set the amount of minutes you want or you can get guided meditations. There's thousands of them on there. So you can pick which one you want. YouTube also has a ton for free. So again, educators don't have a lot of money. It doesn't require that you suddenly join like a meditation group, although those are out there as well. Um, But I'd say start with five minutes a day if you can, and that will, will make a huge difference for you. So, so start there. If you want to get to know me, um, you can certainly look up my stuff on my website. I actually have a new one. So I'll share that website, which is drmegansweet.com, D-R-M-E-G-A-N-S-W-E-E-T.com. Or you can go to your 3 which will also get you there. And uh, I have some courses on how to start to be, once how to start to catch up with those thoughts and those those experiences that are influencing you that you can take online. I also have a podcast just around education called the awakening educator. And I have my own little meditations that I offer sometimes. So you're welcome to come and join any of that.
1: And I'm going to make sure we have your link as well as any other links you want to share with our listeners on the description for this episode. Oh, thank you. I thank you so much for being here today, Megan. Any last words for our audience? I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to be here and to talk. So thank you so much, Lori, for having
2: me. Yeah, my last words really are just you deserve to take care of yourself. Uh, Be unapologetic about that.
1: Thank you. And for our listeners, if you'd like more information, again, look at the description of this episode. And you can also go to thepubertyprof.com for information on this episode, as well as me, the Puberty Prof, Lori Reichel. And thank you for listening. I hope that you have a
0: happy and healthy day. Thank you for listening to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Did you enjoy this episode? Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow the Puberty Prof on Twitter or Instagram. The Puberty Prof, Lori Reichel, wants to hear from you. Go to PubertyProf.com or click on the link in this episode's description. There you can find more information, as well as ask questions to be answered by the Puberty Prof in a future episode. That's PubertyProf.com. Also, remember to check out the Talk Puberty app and the book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty. Until next time, this is the Puberty Prof Podcast. Where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics.